0: Hey everyone, if you like the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, you might also appreciate the I Like Beer the Podcast. Listening to these guys is like being a fly on the wall of the pub with a few of your favorite mates having a pint. These professional beer appreciators have plenty of stories to share on everything from the mating habits of penguins to their behind-the-scenes brewery experiences. Check out the I Like Beer the Podcast wherever you are listening to this show about coffee or head to ilikebeerthepodcast.com. Hello and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 17 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. Today is one of those education episodes where we try to get a little bit coffee smarter. Chris O'Brien, the founder and head roaster of Coffee Cycle Roasting in Pacific Beach, California, is back this week to talk about espresso, And what makes some coffees more appealing to drink as an espresso, or at least they're marketed to us as espresso roasts? How many times can I say espresso in the top of the show? I'm putting the over-under at 9. Espresso is coffee brewed with pressure. During the show, Chris talks about pressure in terms of bars. I should have had him clarify in the moment, but I didn't, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background first. I'm more familiar with PSI, which is the measurement you might use when pumping up your bicycle tire. PSI is measuring the force of something in pounds per square inch. A bar of pressure measurement is the same concept, but it is measuring in kilograms per square inch. Bar pressure measurements are part of the metric system, which is used pretty much everywhere else in the world, including Italy, where espresso was popularized. Traditionally, the ideal pressure for an espresso machine to extract the coffee during the brewing process is 8 to 9 bars. One of those bars is the equivalent of about 14.5 pounds per square inch, meaning that the ideal espresso pressure in an American imperial standard of measurement is 116 to 130.5 psi. That would be one very pumped up bike tire. I'll add a bar to PSI converter to the newsletter on roastwestcoast.com. You can always go there after listening to the show to get recaps, coffee news, clarifying content, coffee education, and updates from our roast industry partners. If you're stoked on this show, the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, and you do feel coffee smarter, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss any of our future shows. And I hope you took the under, because that was 7 times that I said espresso make it eight. Right now, I'm pouring a fresh cup of coffee, and you should too, because it is time to sit back, relax, and get a little bit coffee smarter with Chris O'Brien of Coffee Cycle Roasting on the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. Hey, hey, Chris. Yeah. Chris, are you over there?
1: I am over here. Uh, All right, I'm putting my phone down. I'll be yours. I'll be all yours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always appreciate the professionalism. Welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, Chris. I'm glad you're here. And uh, we got into a pretty intense conversation last week about barista competitions. So if anyone hasn't listened to that, they should because it'll go and take you in different places you probably aren't expecting.
1: Have you had your beard trimmed? Your beard looks very nice and
0: My beard has been trimmed. You know, uh-huh. I really appreciate you noticing. I actually put in a little beard oil today too, just so I would look nice and shiny.
1: Ooh, very nice. You, you look
0: the same. <laughs> I, I wanted to get back onto a topic that is a little bit, I think, more accessible to people today at least people that drink coffee every day or like coffee or coffee drinks. And I want to talk to you about espresso and the coffees that we use for espresso. When I come to your shop, for example, there's always like a coffee that you've chosen to be the house espresso roast. Like if someone just says, I want an espresso or I want a coffee drink, this is the one that you're putting in there. Sometimes you'll say, well, this other coffee tastes really good as espresso or this one doesn't. I'm wondering if there, are, if there are traits or if there are reasons why one coffee might be better for an espresso drink versus a brewed drink than another.
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question. And that's something that comes up all the time in my professional life. So I'm really happy to address it in this forum and sort of talk about it a little bit. It's really confusing because some people will literally put on their bag when they're selling you beans, they'll say, espresso beans. And you're like, well, these are for making espresso, and other beans are not. But the fact of the matter is, is that technically, espresso refers to a means of preparation of coffee, and not to specific beans. So technically, you should be able to pull espresso with any coffee beans. So... You know we could literally like end the episode right there, and I would hope that like everyone would just just trust me and believe me and just would be better people therefore, and cause me a little bit less heartburn. But there is, you know, of course, more subtlety to it than that. and you know that I am willing to talk about it for you know however long we're doing this episode today. So that is the main takeaway though, is that espresso, literally refers to a means of preparation it means to brew using pressure um using pressurized water and there's some standards in the pressure that's used but overall it's it's really just to, to brew it with pressure there's been some innovation with it where we don't always use the same pressure there have been some technical changes over the years that have sort of changed the way pressure is used in, in brewing espressos generally but overall it's 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 pretty Much all the same, you put finely ground coffee into a small metal filter basket. You apply high-pressure water to the top of those compacted, fine grounds. The grounds are so fine and compacted that they resist the pressure of the water. Pressure builds up, and it extracts espresso, which is a coffee that has usually no paper filtration, so it'll have naturally occurring oils in it. Those oils will get emulsified by the pressure. They'll create a a layer of crema on top, sort of a foam from the, the oils being under high pressure. And you can use any kind of coffee to do it. You can use a really light roast, or you can use a really dark roast, or you can use a single origin from any particular origin, or you can use a blend. But espresso historically comes from Italy. And that's where our general understanding of espresso comes from the espresso machine as i think we talked about in another episode was invented around the turn of the century around 1900 there's sort of an early version of it that was invented 10 20 years before that was really just kind of a batch brewer but the espresso machine the the progenitor of the espresso machine as we know it today was invented just before 1900 and then the patent was bought just after 1900 by a guy named pavoni and Pavoni still makes espresso machines. Not the guy himself, he's, he's no longer with us. Uh, but his company, La Pavoni, still makes espresso machines. They're the oldest espresso machine manufacturer in the world, as you would be if you owned the original patent for an espresso machine. And those machines had a boiler that contained boiling water that let contain pressure inside, so you could get it hotter than, than the 212 that water boils at Fahrenheit. And that that sort of acts as like a stored energy, heat energy, and pressure, and then the rest of the pressure was derived from a spring. Um, a lever would be pulled down to engage the spring, and then the spring would push, you know, low pressure water, what was low pressure water, it would push it at the coffee puck, create high pressure, and extract your espresso.
0: I'll just I'm gonna jump in and just I wanted to mention this before just to explain that you'd mentioned you put the finely the finely ground coffee into like a little metal basket yep. that the, the water is then pushed onto it. You just referred to it as a puck and we've said this in other shows, but I just want to clarify it's called that cause it kind of looks like a hockey puck, right? Yeah. I mean, it's essentially a small thick disc of coffee grinds that's so finely compacted that the water that's being pushed through it is like fighting to find a way through to extract yep. that flavor. So when it comes out the bottom of that puck, it's essentially soaked it's, it's been seeped in that, those grounds yes, and forced its way through.
1: Yes. The amount of pressure that we usually use is about nine bars of pressure. Um, if you're using a traditional, like contemporary espresso machine, where it's a pump driven instead of spring driven, that pump is going to pump water at that compacted coffee. And it's going to let the pressure get up to nine bars of pressure. And when it hits nine bars, um, it'll hold it there, and then liquid will slowly seep through the bottom of that compressed puck of coffee and uh, will drip into your espresso cup, and that's your espresso. Um, and I saw an interesting thing the other day. If you take the square inches of, of, a, of a traditional espresso puck, which is 58 millimeters diameter, take the, the square inches of that, and you apply nine pres- nine bars of pressure to it, it's equivalent to something like three ballerinas standing on tiptoe on that same little area. So 58 millimeters, is about like two, two and a half inches, something like that. And uh and I saw this great image of like a porta filter with three ballerinas um, you know, perched <laughs> on it, because that's about the amount of pressure that it would be, is like three hundred pound adults or three ninety-pound adults, you know, all putting their weight on one small little little area. But you know, in Italy where the espresso machine originated. It originated in 1900, uh, around 1900. And so back then, coffee is being brought from all over the world, just like it is now. Uh, But coffee wasn't really being cultivated with the precision and care that it is now. We didn't know as much about agriculture in general back then. And we certainly hadn't applied it as broadly as we do now. And there's still innovations going on at the farm level today. And then, you know, hopefully there always will be. Um, It's always good to be improving. But you can kind of boil that down to say that basically the the green coffee that's coming into Italy in 1900, 1910, 1920, whenever, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at here, is not at the same quality level as it is today. It's just not as refined. They aren't sorting out as many defects. They're not. They don't know what to look for necessarily. They don't know to pick only the ripest cherries. They don't know that they can, you know, have different varietals and crossbreed them to get different um, effects. They they don't take as much care in the processing. So there's going to be more defects that arise in that step. Um, All kinds of different things that are going to go basically more wrong compared to what we know 120 years later. Um, And so... When a roaster gets a coffee that has flaws and defects in it, if we roast it light, if we roast it, you know, to the level that, that like we roast at our shop or that, you know, some other, some other roasters roast uh, the lighter roast style, you're going to taste those defects and they're going to taste really bad. And they're going to taste bad in different ways. We can taste, I think you had an episode with, with Siri about, about tasting, tasting coffee and, and, you know, what we look for in it. But you can have coffee that tastes, you know, we talk about the good tastes in coffee a lot. We talk about coffee that tastes like red wine or blueberry or milk chocolate or caramel. We talk about those things. Well, What we don't like to talk about with customers is coffee that tastes like burnt rubber or asphalt or old Band-Aids or hay, raw peanut. Um, there's all kinds of ways that coffee can taste really bad raw potato you know as potato defect is like a known defect in, in certain coffees and these bad tastes can come from all kinds of these these flaws at the, the producing level or the storage level it could you know taste pretty bad because it was stored poorly or maybe it was on the deck of a ship coming up from africa or latin america or wherever it was and a, a wave came over the side of the ship and got the bag of coffee and that's That's, you know, a real risk because it's just a burlap sack with raw coffee beans inside of it. And so when you have these flaws in a coffee, well, generally we don't want to buy a coffee that has a bunch of flaws in it. But if you're going back 100 years, all the coffee is going to have some flaws in it. So you're going to buy some flawed coffee. And what do you do with it? Do you just roast it light and you taste burnt rubber and, you know, grass and hay? That doesn't sound like it tastes very good. So you roast it darker, and when you roast it darker, the heat is going to destroy some of those delicate compounds that are producing some of these undesirable flavors. It's going to destroy some delicate compounds that destroy that could produce desirable flavors as well.
0: I'd point out that's another uh, way to create consistency in those coffees as well if you're a large-scale operation, and this isn't even uh, meant to be a slight, but... If you want a consistent tasting coffee that you ship around the country or around the world by giving it that extra oomph, that extra roast, you're, what? you're reducing the number of differences that people are going to get on the, you know, on the final consumer end because you've essentially roasted those flavors out.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's maybe problematic that occasionally I use steak as a comparison to coffee <laughs> because I... You know, do you have a lot of vegetarian friends? Um, but if you get a really cheap steak cut and a really nice steak cut, and you cook them both really well done, you just cook the heck out of them, you might notice the taste and difference in the taste. You probably will. But if you cook them both, you know, less, you cook them both medium or medium rare, the difference between those two cuts of steak is gonna be very different. And so. You know, that's the case with a lot of things where you know you can use the cooking process, the, the, the roasting process, the, the application of heat to cover up and destroy defects and to compensate for, for things that didn't go right earlier in the process. And so when you go back in history, you see that, well, we didn't have coffee that was good enough to roast as light as we can roast it now. And so you had to roast it dark. And so... We have this association of espresso beans. What is espresso beans? And we have an association with them being a dark roast. And that's where that comes from. So you do not need to have a dark roast to make an espresso. That being said, if you get used to the taste of a dark roasted espresso, you might not like the taste of a light roasted espresso. It's a very different beverage. And much as I have my preferences there, you know, there's, I can't really say that you're wrong to like a dark roasted espresso because you can take a really nice coffee and roast it dark and have it be good and then make an espresso out of it. So there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and if that's the kind of coffee you like, then then that's always what matters. is Did you like it? I think that it's good to drink coffee that's produced well and it's good to reward producers for producing good coffee. But if ultimately you want to roast it darker and then you want to make espresso out of it or drip or whatever it is, then that's, that's fine. But it is important to know that you can take a worse coffee, a coffee with more flaws, and roast it darker and have that be a sort of a compensation for some of those flaws. And that is where our association with espresso as a dark roast comes from. It comes from the history of espresso being from an earlier time where we didn't have coffee that was good enough to roast light, and the innovation of, of producing good light roasted espresso, chemically, that's actually more difficult to pull off. And that comes down to solubility. So solubility is gonna impact the extraction of the espresso. So when you roast a coffee darker, it does become more soluble. And when I say solubility, I'm talking about how easy are these different compounds that are inside the coffee bean to extract? How easily can I get them from the ground coffee into my liquid beverage, whether it's a drip coffee or an espresso? And roasting a coffee darker, you're eliminating a lot of compounds by combusting them, or not necessarily combusting them, but breaking them down with the heat. You're pairing proteins to sugars and caramelizing more. And so the coffee does become more soluble at a darker roast. Um, there's also some coffees based on origin or varietal or processing that are going to be a little bit more soluble than others.
0: Let me ask you then, so what is your standard uh, espresso at Coffee Cycle right now?
1: Yeah, right now our house espresso is our Costa Rica Black Honey Process cotura Katuai Varietal mix from Tarazu in Costa Rica, Cafe Corazon Farm.
0: You chose that to be your espresso roast because why? And I, the reason I'm asking is because I'm wondering if because of the historical association of espresso with a dark roast, even though you're not wanting to roast to that level of darkness, I'm guessing that you choose espressos that may resemble some of the similar flavors you might find in a darker roast, something a little more chocolatey or richer or, you know, hopefully I'm not way off because that's what customers have grown to associate with espresso as opposed to say in Ethiopia, that's going to be really light and fruity and subtle.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I try to have intentionality like that to most of the things that we do in the cafe um, and to anything that I cook too, you know, it's, it's, Um, it's nice to have things that, that work well together. So, you know, we're pairing a lot of our espressos with milk. So yes, short answer to your question, the Costa Rica that we serve and the Guatemala that we served before that, we chose mainly based on the fact that their taste profile as espresso or as drip is very focused on chocolate and sweetness and not as focused on fruit and acidity, despite the fact that coffee is a fruit and has a lot of natural acidity to it. That being said, the reason that we choose that chocolatey caramelly profiled coffee over a more fruity one isn't necessarily to cater to the broader consumer experience of a less acidic, darker roasted coffee. The reason we do it is actually more because it pairs with the other ingredients that we're using in the store more easily. So a mocha is a popular drink, a vanilla latte is a popular drink. You can pair citrus and berry and fruit flavors with chocolate or vanilla and milk even, Um, but it's gonna be a little bit easier of a pairing to pair a chocolatey coffee with a chocolate and milk or a chocolatey coffee with vanilla and milk. Or with caramel and milk, we have caramel too, you know, we have all these things. So it is possible to pair a fruitier espresso or a fruitier coffee with those things. But, you know, an example of that is that many years ago, we, I made a syrup, a lavender syrup for our lattes. And the main reason I made that syrup was because I had an Ethiopia coffee that was very citrusy and fruity that I really loved. And it made a great espresso but it really didn't pair as well with the vanilla or the chocolate, but it paired great with the lavender and the milk. So those kind of flavor pairings is something that I look at for some of my espresso choices. But I mean, that is a great question because it is nice to be able to serve an espresso to someone when you don't know what their taste preferences naturally are going to be and say, okay, well, this is my style. I don't want to totally rock your world and then, change up your expectation too much. And and so there is an element of that to our, our choices there.
0: Well, and based on what you just said, I would also think that, I think that like an Ethiopia, for example, is a really popular coffee here uh, regionally. I don't know that that's true necessarily in other regions of the country always. And so assuming there's an association with espresso and flavor, It might be more difficult to offer somebody a drink that's so far, so much more, would be more experimental or riskier in that situation for them to try not knowing where they're coming from. Absolutely. And that's not to say we shouldn't challenge people or challenge customers and and that sort of thing either. But I mean, yes, we're we're always talking about coffee, just kind of one-on-one with the audience here, but you also run a business. And so there's that aspect of it that you have to keep in mind as well and so and i would also uh, i just want to reiterate and make sure that it was it it made sense that when you were talking about the costa rica or the guatemala that you serve as an espresso those flavors are occurring naturally not because you are roasting them to an excessive amount that was that's kind of the value there is they are a better coffee that naturally has flavors uh, so you can roast it to a lighter medium level which we got to figure out a better way to talk about like medium and light roasts, because every roaster has like maybe a little bit different perspective on where their light is or where their medium is. And when you're talking to customers, are you referring to it as, well, it's lighter medium on this general world scale? Is it lighter, medium or dark based on the shop scale? Right. You know, it, it's it's a very poor selection of words that we have chosen to to use for this particular thing. What if I don't want to come to the shop? I have never made an espresso at home. I've made a few espressos in your shop uh, at a time in a place that I know you've tried to forget.
1: You did great, bud.
0: (laughs) But so I know brewing espresso at home seems to be something that's becoming more common. I'm seeing it a lot more, especially with listeners of the show. Uh, Actually, one of our followers, if you're on Instagram, follow at Caldwell Coffee. He does a lot of espresso at home that seems to be something more and more people are getting into. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of touch on that and say, is that something that people should be doing? Or is it, are there at home uh, espresso machines that seem to be worth a damn? I don't even really know where to go to the question. You're the expert. You tell me.
1: Well, you know, it's, um, it's actually an awesome topic because home espresso is becoming more and more accessible, even as, coffee is changing to make espresso even harder to pull off than it used to be so we're talking about solubility and we have those darker roasts that are more easily soluble but there's also different origins and different coffees that are more easily soluble so you know we we're not very used to as consumers drinking what i what we call single origin espressos and you know there's 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 a quote and a sort of a philosophy about how all coffee is a blend because, you know, every coffee beans a little bit different. Uh, every farm is a little bit different and you know, all your coffee is always going to be a bit of a blend, but usually when you talk about a blend, you're talking about mixing, you know, a Brazil with an Ethiopia, with a Colombia, or, you know, a, also with a Sumatra or whatever it is that you're, you're mixing together. And so most, we talked about how, you know, espresso has been influenced historically uh, by where it comes from in italy but it's also influenced currently by where coffee's being produced and so you know the largest producer of coffee in the world is brazil and a lot of brazilian coffees are very easily soluble not very high acidity and so they're easy to extract well and they're not too fruity they tend to have a lot of chocolate flavors and you know kind of cinnamon nutmeg spice kind of notes and easy to drink easy to easy to get behind and so Brazil forms the basis of most espresso blends out there. And most coffee shops, not wanting to have their espresso change too much and not wanting the challenges of having to pull single-origin espressos that you know may or may not please a wide variety of their customers, they'll sell an espresso blend. And I promise I'm gonna take this back to espresso at home. But those blended espressos are gonna be a little bit easier to extract Um, on any kind of equipment that you have, whether it's home equipment or commercial equipment, and whether you're super well-trained or not. But getting to home espresso, you know, a huge barrier of entry has always been the expense of home espresso equipment. To get an espresso machine is usually not very cheap. Nowadays, you can get one for a couple hundred dollars, which, given that I've been working in coffee for, you know, 18 years now or something like that, geez, no, 20, 21 years? I don't know. How old am I again?
0: The last two years don't count. That's the policy. <laughs>
1: they, they're,
0: they're flex years that you can use for or against yourself if you like.
1: Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, <laughs> but given that I've been working in coffee for so long, it's incredibly cheap. Um, because if I were to buy a $400 espresso machine 20 years ago, chances are that it would have either not worked or not been available or would have broken you know, instantly.
0: I'm imagining something with a bike pump.
1: I, I like that though. I like where your head's at.
0: You know, like a bike pump to create the pressure and, and you know, pushing the water and the whole thing for 400 bucks seems reasonable.
1: Well, and you know, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because nowadays there's also this huge market for manual espresso machines where you do create the pressure, not with an electrical pump, but there's some that are made with um, lever arms that you just push um there's some that are made with crank arms where you spin it to create the pressure of like this kind of corkscrew spring pressure and basically home espresso has become a lot more accessible in terms of the price point of a machine that's going to produce you know your sort of six to nine bars of pressure that you want and so that's really cool but one thing that we always talk about in the shop when we're talking to customers and trying to recommend them what to do for their their home espresso is, and this has been true for the entirety of my time in, in coffee, is that it's always better to invest in the grinder over the espresso machine. Because the espresso machine really has one job to do. And it's to produce nine bars of water pressure delivered to your coffee. And most machines will do that. And even if they only do six bars, uh, that's actually kind of trendy now and sort of popular is to to mess with the pressure of a commercial machine, bring it down to six bars, and then extend your brew time a little bit longer. And, you know, you'll find people that sort of fall, coffee professionals that sort of fall in different camps as far as their opinion on that and and whether they like it or whether they want to see more of that or less of that or what have you. But the fact of the matter is, is that an espresso machine has one job and it's produced that that pressure of water and that job is not that hard. Um, It can be hard on the equipment over time because you have to heat up water to boiling and you have to force it, you know, at this pressure. And so, you know, lifespan of equipment might have some issue there, but if you just need to get into the game, espresso machine is really not that hard to produce with today's technology. Like I said, people are even doing it with little spinny crank arms. You just fill it with some boiling water and spin this little thing. What's really hard to do is to grind coffee really fine, really fine, so that it reduces, it resists the pressure of that nine bars of, of liquid, nine bars of liquid water pressure. Grind it really fine and have the particle consistency still be relatively uniform, or at least bimodally uniform. And by bimodally uniform, I mean it's producing two different size particles that are, are at least both of those particles are, are very similar in size, not to each other, but to e- to each other, to themselves, to themselves. <laughs> and so, you know, espresso grinders kind of come two ways. Popular now, especially for lighter roasts, like we talked about, is is a grinder that's going to create a more unimodal espresso grind. Um, and those are usually big flat burr grinders, and that's what we use in our shop. We use flat burr that's a very wide diameter so they can grind coffee at a reasonable speed without raising your RPM so much that it will heat the coffee too much while grinding. And that creates a very unimodal espresso. Um, But it's very challenging to machine a burr that is going to produce that unimodal coffee coffee ground size. And also it's difficult to produce the grinder to hold it that's going to spin the burrs and hold them so perfectly parallel to each other that you are creating that uniform particle size. Engineering-wise, it just requires an incredible amount of precision. And some of the really high-end espresso grinders that we work with, even commercially, are notorious for failures in the engineering quality control aspect of keeping those burrs aligned perfectly, for example. And so these are even some of the highest-end grinders that we have that we, we have these challenges with. And because, you know, we're trying to produce consistency on this high volume level, um, that challenge is even greater. But even at home, you know, you don't want to pull a really good shot of espresso one day and then a really terrible one the next day. You want that to be consistent at home, too, especially because, you know, your volume of coffee, if you're not going through 40 pounds of coffee on your espresso machine in a day like you would be in a high volume shop, you don't want to waste a shot of espresso just trying to get a good shot. You waste a shot of espresso, you've wasted you know, a tenth or a fifteenth of the bag that you just bought. And suddenly your, your, your coffee budget is getting smaller. And we've already spent all this money on the, the grinder and the espresso machine. So we always recommend people spend the money on the grinder first because whether you're doing unimodal where you have this big flat burr and you're creating this singular particle size and trying to extract it all at the same, or whether you're getting a bimodal grinder, which is usually going to be a conical burr grinder, which is just a different style of burr grinder. And it tends to produce two different size particles, which are generally thought to be very good for espresso because one of those particle sizes is significantly smaller. And so it will more easily create a puck that resists the pressure because those smaller particles sort of fill in the gaps between the bigger particles. but Effectively, what that does is it creates a more viscous, heavier-bodied espresso, where the big flat burr grinders create a more watery espresso with a little bit more clarity. And so you'll find
0: people... We would would more- you say that the... Sorry to, sorry, there. Would you say that the... Um, I've always thought of, of the right grinder for at home to be the conical one, just based on what I've learned from you and, and from others. it it sounds to me like you're saying that the flat burr would be the the best for espresso only but maybe the conical would be better for a more versatile usage or no
1: what you really find is that people really like one or the other generally for either drip or for for espresso and i support both kinds of grinder in all kinds of ways Uh, i like conical burrs for espresso and for drip I like flat burrs for espresso and for drip and I think that I'm a little unusual in that I think people tend to tend to have ones that they they like more I do choose flat burr grinders more often for my purposes commercially but all the grinders I have at my home are all conical and it's not really um because I think that they're better because they're conical it just is just happened with the, those the grinders that I have I think for home grinders, you do tend to see conicals a little bit more often just because they're going to be able to grind a larger amount of coffee using a smaller footprint for the machine. You get more surface area, grinding surface area with conical burrs in a smaller diameter. So if you have 40 millimeter conical burrs, that's a huge burr set. That's a ton of surface area to grind the coffee on but you're going to get a similar um, surface area to grind on with like a hundred millimeter flat burr set. And so if you're trying to house a hundred millimeters of burrs, that's a fairly large width to the machine, you know, at least compared to 40 millimeters. And so you have a lot more room in your machine for sort of other, other things. Um, So I think engineering wise to produce an affordable home machine that also fits in like a nice kitchen footprint, you find a little bit more often you'll find conical burrs, but you know, ultimately it's, it's really just a a choice that you can make. And I don't really feel like you have to fall on one or the other, but if you're an espresso person, if you really love espresso, you probably will love either really higher clarity, larger volume, less body shots from a flat burr grinder, or you'll like more viscous, more syrupy, little bit more muddled flavor and more um, homogenized flavor of a, of a conical espresso. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I think they both, they both work great. It's just kind of your, your style. and what you prefer.
0: Sure. And I would refer back to, uh, we did a, a grinder test a couple years yeah. back. And one thing I, I would say with that was that I would bring up now in saying, as we're discussing this one you start thinking about the cost of your coffee experience at home uh, versus in the shop. And this is one of those areas where I say it's worth it to do the research, spend more money if you need to, but try not to underspend just because something is on sale or discounted because the, the failings of some of the, let's say lesser, uh, lesser equipped machines are dramatic when it comes to the coffee flavor that's going to come out at the end of, at the yeah. end of the day. So you really take that into account when you're thinking about it, that, yeah, I want to do this at home and I, and to make it worth it. I also want it to taste good at home. This is what I got to do to make that happen and decide for yourself if, if that is the path you yeah. want to go.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty cool how accessible home espresso has become, you know, as far as the machines go. Um, but, the espresso machines um but the nice thing that we're seeing like now like right now is that the grinders are now becoming more and more accessible as well so in the last you know 10 years there have been a couple of grinders that have come out that really um have changed the the whole espresso scene for the better um by making it much more accessible and it's it's funny because the price tag on these grinders and them seems you know like a, a jaw drop to people that just aren't used to these things but with the the 20 years barista experience you know and i you just couldn't get an espresso machine or espresso grinder for home for under $1000 10 years ago. You just couldn't. Like if you got one that was less than that, your espresso just would never be very good. Like there's just no way to do it. And nowadays there's 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 options. And there's there's plenty of options. And you know, I, I say said $1000 and I there were grinders you know 10 years ago that could do espresso that was okay back then. But nowadays we just have we have options. And some of them are pretty, pretty fantastic. And I think, you know, the most famous one right now, um, that's shaking things up. And I I remember I had a a friend who got one when they're very new, and they're still sort of, they're sort of not quite hard to get, but you got to wait for it is it's called the niche zero. And the niche zero is a really interesting grinder. Um, It's very small, it's fairly quiet, it can do anything from French press to espresso, which is You know, very unusual. It's a conical burr set. But it doesn't have any like real bells and whistles. You have to weigh out your coffee before you put it in the in the grinder. You put it in the grinder and you grind it and it comes out. And then you have to load it into your portafilter or into your pour over. And there's no there's no timer, there's no scale, there's no like there's just no real bells and whistles to it. But you know, when I used to work at a very busy high-end cafe. We used these espresso grinders that were kind of the, the gold standard for most commercial espresso grinders. We used Mazzer Espresso Grinders, M-A-Z-Z-E-R. And Mazzer Espresso Grinders make good espresso, and they have a couple different models. And some of the models are sort of more famous than others. But the the lowest model that's you know kind of most popular is called the Super Jolly, and it's a flat burr grinder. But it pushes coffee out of the grind chamber, and it sort of pushes it down this channel into your collection chamber or into your portafilter and so coffee tends to get kind of caught up in this chamber or on this channel and so that's what we call grind retention and then the next model up from that was the coney and the coney had this conical burr set that created you know excellent excellent grounds and it was bimodal but it was very very finely machined and the coney could do a fair amount of volume but it wasn't the fastest grinder they had they had the Rober, I think, was the next one up. And the Rober, the the burr diameter, was bigger, still conical burrs, but because it had a bigger burr set, it could grind even faster. But the interesting thing was the the Rober and the next one up from that, the Major, the grind quality that came out of those burrs, those burrs weren't as finely machined as the Kony. And they all had the problem of retention. So if you change your grind setting on one of these Mazur grinders, you have to purge, you have to grind a couple shots before you see any changes in the grind setting. But the Kony had the best burr set of all of them. It was not the biggest, but it had the my, finest machining. So the Niche Zero actually uses the grind, the burr set from the Mazzer Kony, and it has zero retention. So you change the grind setting and immediately the next coffee you grind through is changed. That's why it's called the Niche Zero. And this grinder I think costs, I think when it was new and it was still a Kickstarter, it was like 500 bucks. And now I think it's like seven, 800, but it's commercial level espresso. I mean, this, this Coney grinder was like a $3,000 grinder, two, $3,000 at least. And now you can get it for under a thousand dollars at home. And it eliminates some of the flaws in the commercial version. I mean, not that they're made by the same company at all, because they're not, but it just is a great example of of how espresso has changed at home and why you invest your money in that, in that grinder, because, a grinder like the Niche Zero or, you know, like the Urbanic grinder that we have in our shop for sale for home or the DF64 that I just recommended a friend of mine get for his home setup, you know, any of these grinders are under $1,000. Some of them are under $500 and they can produce incredible espresso at home, either conical or flat burr that's really comparable to what you get in a shop. And all those espresso machines are going to kind of do pretty much the same job. They might look a little fancy, they might have um, you know, a feature or two that another one doesn't have. There might be things that you want in your espresso machine, you want to spend that extra money. But if you really want to have a bare bones espresso set up at home, you can have that for a price that's half what you used to pay 10 years ago and you can get quality that's as good as you can get in a cafe if you can get your personal barista skills to get there.
0: I feel right now the same way that I feel when I talk to people that are really into bicycles (laughs) and there's a lot of specs and a lot of technical knowledge and I think it's just one of those things where you can create a baseline of knowledge and these are some generalities but when it comes down to it I think what you're saying is we have a lot of options right now and Everybody's going to have their different threshold for what they're willing to spend or not spend or, and I would also add in time because if you are making espresso and things at home, there's going to be more time spent either just doing the process of grinding and, and maintaining that espresso machine each day, especially if you're doing it like before work to go somewhere now, probably still less than the amount of time you might spend to go to a coffee shop, but you know, you're still the one doing it. And so there's just all these little different things that'll impact somebody's decision on whether or not they want to do yeah. that. Uh, for me, I have a little tiny galley kitchen. <laughs> so I actually have my grinder, the grinder that I have set up like on a rolling cart, like in the living room <laughs> that I have to go get, you know, in the mornings. And so I'm not interested in, in adding more things to my countertops at yeah. this point. I, actually, I don't think I would be allowed <laughs> to, uh, even if I wanted to so it's just a really it's just a whole new kind of consumer ability that we just didn't have a few years ago and i would have never even thought to do until recently
1: yeah well you know it's 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 a it's a cool privilege that we have but it's it's incredible that you know you have me on here as your coffee smarter guy or whatever and i'm just you know telling you about things that smarter people than me have been doing you know it's uh it's amazing the engineering that's gone into making this stuff more accessible. But it's it's funny because people still j- drop that jaw at these price tags. But I can just see it with this perspective of 20 years and see how much it's changed. You know, I, I just took a trip recently and I, I brought my coffee grinder with me. I have a hand grinder and I have a high precision hand grinder as well as a, a cheapo one. And I, the, the precision one that I brought with me this thing costs like $300, but you can make espresso on it. If you want to sit there and you want to crank the grinder by hand, you can make great espresso on this grinder. It's 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 been tested. It's it's a fantastic, fantastic machine.
0: Is that why you're wearing a sling today?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. That's why. I'm not actually wearing a sling, by the way, for anybody listening. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was massaging.
0: Don't ruin the picture I'm painting here, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, before before I let you go today, I just I want to ask you what is your favorite coffee to make espresso with? Or if you had to be kind of more general about it, whether it's a medium light, dark roast, a richer, fuller Sumatra or an Ethiopia, what is it that you like? If you were to walk into shop and you saw that, saw something on the thing, you'd be like, oh
1: yeah, that's what I want. All right. So there's a bunch of ways I could answer this, but I, I'm, I'm actually very happy with this because I love to drink Ethiopia espressos. I love fruit and coffee in general. And I love to drink a really good Ethiopia espresso. If I can get an Ethiopia natural as an espresso, I love that. I love a big berry flavor in there. I'm not crazy about pulling them because I find them to be a little bit tricky to get a good shot out of, but I love them. Um, I do love pulling, you know, a coffee that I know will kind of make anyone happy. You know, I love pulling our Costa Rica and just sending someone off knowing that they're going to be stoked with that no matter who they are. But... I remember when I was first working at Bird Rock, and the first couple of years I was there, I was being trained by this guy, and we were working kind of a quieter closing shift, and he, you know, t- trained me, taught me a bunch of things about coffee and, and espresso, and we were able to pull an espresso out of a Sumatra coffee we had at the time, a Sumatra Lake Tawar coffee that was, you know, very highly regarded and, and really good, and. I remember we both tasted it and we thought it was so cool. It had this brown sugar and molasses and it had these herbs and spices, um, a little bit of like raisin and fig. And, you know, we talked about serving it as, you know, we, we didn't have any authority to serve anything there. We were, we were you know, but um, we talked about serving it. And I remember this this barista that was training me, you know, he was one of those pretty pretentious baristas uh, and by the end, but he, he made this, you know, kind of ridiculous comment of, I don't think the average customer would understand it, uh, and uh, and you know it's funny because we pull single origin Sumatras at our shop pretty often. We we just put up a new one on our our, our in house roasted Sumatra just got put on espresso, and I love it, and so many other people love it, and that guy, that guy was just so wrong. A really good Sumatra is is kind of this really weird, cool espresso that like that a lot of different coffee drinkers will like, but it's still unique. And so I have i don't know if I've ever seen a single origin espresso at another shop. But if I did see one on a menu, I think I would absolutely order that. I mean, I tend to order single origin espresso, whatever a shop pulls. But if I were, were to go to a shop like mine, if there were one out there that pulled six different kinds of espresso, and I saw Sumatra was on there, that's probably what I would pick. Because I just think that's, it's such a cool, weird coffee, so different from what you get from other espressos with that savory aspect. You get a lot of Sumatra in espresso blends. Um, it's also a very soluble origin generally, so it's very easy to extract usually. So I wouldn't feel bad for the barista that has to pull me the shot. I find it to be pretty forgiving. Yeah, I would definitely order a Sumatra espresso if I had to pick one.
0: I love that because I'm a Sumatra person. Personally, that's always been my favorite. Although I've been transitioning probably because of the influence of people like you to start enjoying more uh, fruitier coffees. But I want to finish today with one last question. I obviously tell people to go to Coffee Cycle and you're on the show and we're always saying, you know, Chris at Coffee Cycle and promoting you. Thank you. Not because pay me or anything, but just because I like doing it. I don't even pay you for this. (laughs) I noticed. But I wanted to... (laughs) I wanted to give you a chance to, to pay it forward a little bit. If you were to say, to recommend to someone to go get an espresso somewhere else, what's another shop you'd, you'd shout out?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I, I got to shout out Ascento. I, mean, I know we've mentioned him on, just on this uh, this forum before, but you know, I just said if there were another shop that existed that pulled four or five kinds of espresso and I, they had a Sumatra, well, guess what? Luis uh, Sanchez at Ascento Coffee Roaster's does pull four or five different kinds of espresso and he does have a Sumatra um, and it's fantastic. And uh, I would definitely recommend going there. There's a bunch of other great shops in this city. Uh, I love them. The ones that I don't get to often enough that I really love, or, you know, Scrimshaw is a great shop that I'd love to love to get down to more often. You know, there's just, just a bunch. There's just a, a ton and, you know, just support your local coffee scene. That's, that's all. And if you find a local coffee shop that you love, and you go there all the time, even if it's coffee cycle. Just treat yourself to a change and go somewhere else. It's also local for for a change. You know, try something, um, because everyone who puts in the effort to create a shop deserves a little bit of a little bit of support. From almost everyone.
0: <laughs> I also like Asento and, and have been there many times, as long as it's not Sunday. Oh, because Luis serves, serves on Sundays, on Sundays yeah. so you can't get your espresso. Yeah, don't,
1: don't go on a Sunday. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he deserves that
0: day. I wonder if Luis listens to the show. We're going to find out, I think. Chris, thank you so much for being here one more time. Uh, we really went way further into that than I expected, and that's always awesome. I know I appreciate it, and I know our listeners appreciate it. I didn't get a chance to tell you this off air, but I recently had a listener reach out and ask me about storing coffee, and I referred him back to a show we did in the first season about storing coffee. and whether you should or shouldn't put it in the freezer and I'm going to link to that. So other people can (laughs) listen to it. And he sent me a photo back, another photo of his, the coffee that he had ordered and like the way he had it stored and the whole thing. And he was so excited to have that knowledge for himself. And That's such a cool thing that we can provide. Oh yeah. That's awesome. That's great. Thanks, man. Thank you. And I'll talk to you again soon, buddy. Thanks again. To recap, when you see the term espresso on a bag of coffee beans, it is referring to a style of preparation, not a particular style of coffee bean. Espresso is a coffee brewing technique in which fine coffee grinds are compacted into a hockey puck looking thing, and then hot water is forced through those grinds using pressure and pulling or extracting coffee flavor and oils with it as it finds its way out the bottom. The basket container those grinds are held in during this process is called a portafilter. The holes in the bottom of the basket will guide the coffee to a singular point to drain down into a glass. It's a cool process to watch. And I'll share a video of it in the newsletter, which you can find at roastwestcoast.com. I'll also cover a lot of vocab in this week's post, share examples of hand-pressurized espresso machines that have, as Chris so eloquently put it, a spinny crank arm. I'll even include a list of coffee grinders that offer a lot of value for the money, if you are looking to grind at home, but not looking to break the bank just yet. I want to thank you for listening today and for supporting your local coffee roasters. There are so many great coffee roasters and coffee shops out there, and I am trying to get to them all, but it is hard to do when this show's industry partners also make such great coffee and whiskey. So a special thanks to Café La Terre, Moster Coffee Company, Leap Coffee, Marea Coffee, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, First Light Whiskey, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, and Ignite Coffee Company. Tyler Whitehead, the founder at Ignite Coffee Company, has some big coffee news, which he is going to share with us during the next Roast West Coast interview episode. And if you haven't already heard it, please go back a few days and listen to the Chad Bell of Achilles Coffee Roasters interview that came out earlier this week. Chad was a great guest, and if you're interested in entrepreneurship, and how the industry may be adapting to the current employment market, you definitely don't want to miss it. Links to all of the great industry partner roasters are right there on the front page of this show's newsletter at roastwestcoast.com. And if you have a question you want answered on a future episode of Coffee Smarter, hit us up on Instagram at roastwestcoast. Speaking of, Kim, I got that answer for you. Once you practice your steaming and frothing of milk, you cannot rechill and use that milk again. The proteins have been broken down too much and it will not reconstitute in a way that will functionally enable you to keep practicing. However, a recommendation from several coffee experts and pro baristas that I consulted suggested using cold water with a squirt of unscented hand soap. This will help you save some money and be a fairly decent substitute that mimics a similar foaming reaction during the steaming process. Next week, Jared Hales of Hasea Coffee Source is rejoining the show but this time as a coffee expert. We're gonna talk about buying green coffee for beginners. If you've ever thought about roasting your own coffee, you won't wanna miss this because it all starts with the green bean. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity and coffee to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee. Hey there, if you liked this episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, I just wanted to let you know we now have Tip Your Barista stickers available online. Check out the most recent post on roastwestcoast.com to get yours, and I'll be tipping a barista for every sticker sold. And if you want more and more coffee content, while you're there, please consider buying us a cup of coffee or signing up for a paid subscription to the Roast West Coast Coffee newsletter. That'd be really cool, and with enough subscribers like you, we'd be able to focus on creating coffee content all day, every day. Subscriptions are the best way to show appreciation for the show. Just head to roastwestcoast.com to subscribe or leave a tip. Thanks for listening, everyone.